This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're really excited to be joined by another guest from across the pond, uh, Professor Roland Enos, who is the visiting professor of biology at the University of Hull, but for our purposes is also the author of The Age of Wood, which is uh, an, a really interesting and um, really groundbreaking, in my, my perspective, study on what he describes as the most useful material um, that has been responsible for the construction, really, of civilization. Um, so no small uh, task to unpack in, in this quick podcast. And um, the paperback version of The Age of Wood is coming out to um, American audiences here in, in the next week or so. And so we're releasing this podcast sort of simultaneously with its release. But Roland, um, where did you, before we get jumping into all of this, where did you like to paint a picture of the people that we're talking to? Where did you grow up and what got you so fascinated in this? And then maybe we'll, we'll kind of get what got you to Wood. But, but where, where's your story start? Oh, I was brought up in the uh, suburbs of London, actually, um, not far from the Royal Palace of Hampton Court, which I used to cycle past every day on the, the way to school. And so at that part of London, it's full of history. It's where all the, um, all the, all the rich people in, from, from Tudor times up to the 19th century came out to have their country homes. So I used to sort of like pass... Uh, Michael Faraday, the famous scientist house. And so I was always had a fascination for history, but more also I was fascinated by biology and engineering. Uh, and so um, it's through those that I got my interest in materials and love of nature. It all came together uh, with this love. I have an interest in, the, in wood and, and how we've used it. And you seem like an interesting, you kind of describe um, in parts of the book sort of this interesting place that you live in academia where you're sort of in between biology, applied science, anthropology, pure history. Um, it almost seems like you don't um, fit in a perfect place in academia or they don't, they don't always know where to put you. <laughs> no, I don't fit, don't fit anywhere. Uh, and my, my sort of big subjects, what you would call it is biomechanics. So that is a link between biology and engineering. Uh, so you're always an outsider. The biologists are a bit don't, a bit wary of you because you know something about physics. Physicists uh, look down on you. Engineers are nice. They 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 are very helpful, but they think you're quite amusing and 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 uh, odd. Um, but then later on, I got interested in in putting this into uh, anthropology archaeology and history and I was lucky enough to sort of have some links with the anthropologists and historians at the University of Hull so I was able to sort of uh, get some more expertise in those areas by talking to them. And so when it comes to biology has it always been wood I mean wood from day one in terms of from its cellular structure to how we can manipulate it with the ridges on our fingers has it always been wood itself the material that's fascinated you most? And has that always been your area of study? Well, not really. I, I started off uh, looking, my PhD research was on the mechanics of insect wings and how they're designed. Uh, 
but in 1987, October 1987, an awful lot of the trees uh, in southeast England were blown down by a huge gale. And so I, I realized that people didn't know much about how roots anchor plants in the ground. So I sort of transferred, became, got into plant biomechanics. And then actually the first lecture I ever gave was on trees and on the mechanics of wood. And that interest from, from the time that I was, I was 30, that just expanded and looking at it sort of linked in with the things I'd loved from my childhood. And, uh, and I managed to, to talk to anthrop anthropologists, primatologists and do research with them. And it just sort of happened and it, and it sort of been gradually uh, thinking about it for the last 20 or 30 years, going to museums. And when you do that, are all around you, you see that everywhere uh, there is wood. And that's no one ever talks about it, but it's always there. Yeah, it's something, you know, this is not, from my perspective, this is not an extended sales pitch for the, for the book for The Age of Wood, although I would encourage everyone to pick it up because for me, someone working in historic preservation and saving buildings and, and doing the work of this, like you say, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. I'm sitting on it. I'm looking at it. My desk, my computer is is propped up by it. Um, and it's it's there are these things in our lives where they're just so ever present that you just begin to ignore them. Right. That's I mean, right. it's sort of like the air around you. Like, yeah, I guess I'm synthesizing air in my lungs, but I'm not really thinking about it much like that. And wood seems to be something that is almost as present as oxygen. I mean, it is just ever present in our lives. And I think that a book like this is great in that, you know, I'm not sure I would have ever really stopped to think about the tensile strength of wood and how it can be compacted and how it can expand and how it, how the strength of it. Um, but you really paint the picture for just this most diverse material in terms of the way we can use it. Um, and so I kind of want to jump to this idea that the book and you really compellingly make this case that from our descent from the trees, you know, an early hominid species to literally empire building, um, none of it is possible without or a human relationship with wood. And even the title of the book, right, is The Age of Wood, sort of a sort of a, a callback to this idea of the Iron Age and the Bronze Age and all these sorts of things. How on earth did we miss all of this for so long? Why is there a Bronze Age and a Stone Age and all these different ages and wood is not really considered a part of that? How, how, have, we, how have we done that? I think, well, the main reason is that very little wood has actually survived. It hasn't, it's nowhere near, it doesn't last in the fossil record. It doesn't last anywhere near as long as those other materials you've mentioned, the stone, up bronze and iron. And originally those ages, they were called those ages just because the, some of the first archaeologists actually uh, could, could sort of age what, how old a particular uh, archaeological dig was by finding particular sorts of stone, particular sorts of bronze, particular sorts of iron in, for instance, in the graves, whereas there wasn't any, there wasn't any wood uh, there. So they, they, so they called them those ages, the Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age. But then by a sort of process of osmosis or something, uh, people, because they were the only things to study, then they, what, scientists do is they 
is they tend to think that the thing they study is the most important. And because there was lots of stone left from the Stone Age, people would classify it as the most important thing and suggest that stone was the dominant material. Of course, if you look at reconstructions of Stone Age life, all the things that there's very little stone about, there's a few a few little stone tools, but then there's wooden huts, there's wooden fires, uh, wooden spears, wooden digging sticks. Everything is wood, but it's it's not there. But the archaeologists have got into that mindset uh, in that those must, because they're the only things that survive, those must be the important things. And and and, and that's why they've just disregarded uh, the most important material, just because it's not obviously there. Yeah, and I don't know if that's technically confirmation bias or whatever kind of bias it is, but... Mm. It's sort of the bias that we have in the preservation world as well, and I imagine would be the same over the pond where, well, these are the buildings that remain, so these must have been the most important, and these tell us the most about that time period. But here in the United States, if you were to go down that route, then African-American homes and dwelling places and commercial sites, they wouldn't really, they don't pop up as much because so many of them have been lost. And so you begin to make these strange evaluations. I mean, imagine what, we would say about our own civilization if you only did it by the things that remained. I guess it would be that we were, yeah, that we would be hyper-interested or hyper, you know, just, I guess we're, this is the plastic era. But the plastic era or the stainless steel era or the, uh, or the diamond era, because that doesn't, doesn't rot at all. So uh, if you, yeah, it, it, it just needs to take a mind, change of mindset to, to think in a, in a different way and specialists, uh, don't ever, in my opinion, experience thinking different ways. They're all sort of channeled into thinking in their own particular way. And they've done it all their lives, so they're not going to say, all oh, my life's work is pointless. So they're always going to emphasise how important what they've been studying all their lives is. So it's, it's, it's always going to be difficult to change people's, the expert's mind, even change young people's minds much more easily. So in changing minds, in writing this book... Uh, before we take a quick pause and then come back. But did anything that you came across really change your mind or your perception and understanding of how sort of human civilization evolved with respect to wood? Was there any moment where you just said, wow, I, I never really saw this coming? I think the, the, the main thing was when we saw how our ancestors, or not our, our relatives, the orangutans, how they make wooden nests in the jungle and just how fantastic how fantastic woodworkers they are. And that really set my mind working to think, well, wood has been important, must have been important for for, for millions of years. And we must have inherited our woodworking capability from from our ape ancestors. Yeah, and perhaps that's why even, I mean, in some sort of like metaphysical way, woodworking today, I mean, obviously it's a skill and there's carpentry and there's people who do it because we have to do it, but then there's sort of a calming um, piece to it as well. There's something innate. It, it, mm. it feels better to work with a piece of wood than it does to try and shape a piece of plastic. And maybe Absolutely. that's just innate in us. I think it is. And uh, having wood around us makes us feel happier. Carpenters are, are no to- uh, sort of well-known to be happy individuals, much much more so than steel workers or or people who make concrete and it's and the worrying thing is is that maybe a lot of in recent times we've lost 
that connection that we've always had. And I think that's that's a dangerous thing. And that will always, that's likely just to make us less happy if we carry on in that way. So maybe we'll come back and talk about sort of the future of wood and, and restoring wood and things like that. And then where you're headed with your research. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, we're excited again to be joined by Professor Roland Enos, who's the visiting professor of biology at the University of Hull. Um, and we've been talking about his book, The Age of Wood, which is now coming out in paperback for American audiences. Um, and it's really this really fascinating and very well-written, very approachable deep dive into the history of this substance that is sort of ever-present in our lives, uh, this material that has meant so much to us from, as we were talking about, descending our ancient, um, you know, hominid ancestors, descending from the trees, even our closest uh, ancestors, the orangutans, all the way up to, you know, these, these various ages of civilization that we're familiar with. I mean, could we, could the British Empire, for example, and I think you kind of compellingly make this case, but could could the exploration of the New World have happened really without wood? I mean, it, it it's central to everything, but if you take wood out of any of these conversations, does the whole thing just sort of collapse? Well, it, it does, actually. And one of the important things to say about empire building is that empire building couldn't have happened without wooden ships but wooden ships couldn't have happened without the use of metal tools and so the first plank boats and the first ships didn't appear until the bronze age in the old world of course in the new world uh metallurgy never developed to produce uh, strong metals and therefore uh, there was never any any there was no no bronze or iron ages in the americas and though they produce impressive civilizations, the Incas, the Aztecs, they never uh, managed. Therefore, they never managed to make sea-going vessels. Uh, they only had had uh, rafts and log boats. And so, it was. That's the reason why it's the old world were the people who explored and found the new world and then conquered it, rather than the reverse. And so, it's just directly connected into all of that. Um, and it also, I mean, you do make the case too that, you know, like like you just described very eloquently, that um, without metallurgy, without the metals that we've come to depend upon, then you can't utilize and manipulate the wood in in ways that allow you to do different things with it. Do we see that today? I mean, maybe kind of transitioning to this kind of conversation around the future of wood and some thoughts around that, but. Uh, are we manipulating it in new and interesting ways? Is, the, is there a future for wood? There's a massive future for wood. Uh, and the really exciting thing is the way that we're using wood in conjunction nowadays uh, with, with, sort of, uh, plas- with, with plastic glues. Um, we've had plywood for, for about 100 years, which, which, in which layers of 
of, of veneer are glued together with with um, uh, sort of with plastic resins. But now the real real the real um, game changer is the development of mass lumber uh, and with mass with with wood laminates. And what they the big advance there is that they not only glue bits of wood side to si side to side, but they can glue pieces of wood end to end. They have very very uh, closely fitting finger joints, so you can make planks of now make planks of any length, link them side to side and and top to bottom to make beams of any size, and you could bend those beams before you glue them, so you can make beams of any size and any shape and the future therefore with all these enormous wooden beams you can make is to make is to produce vast uh sports halls rather like rather like the old victorian um railway station you can make um can make huge new greenhouses and you can make vast new uh skyscrapers and the big trend nowadays is for wooden skyscrapers, and they're popping up all around the world. And is that because there's sort of a recognition that wood is inherently, even if you're mixing it with plastics and things that aren't renewable, that wood is still the most renewable? I mean, it seems like for a while in the mid-20th century, we got to this point where wood was sort of passe. It was old. And if you wanted to build clean and new, it had to be plastic and metal and glass and things like that. And you didn't see wood in it. We've shifted back to that. Is it is it the the renewable nature of it? Because that's the case that the preservation community makes is that we should be saving buildings because there's this inherent carbon sort of capture already within them. And and why waste and um, and deploy all of that to a landfill? Is it the same thing? with the wood of the future, does it offer us a more sustainable path? Well, it, it's, it's vast, much, much lighter. A, a wooden building is much, much lighter than a, than an equivalent um, concrete building and has about a fifth of the climate impact. It's, so it's got a much, much smaller carbon, carbon footprint. And of course, it's, it's, um, it's locking up all that carbon in, in the wood itself. And that's one of the main big reasons for for going for these sorts of uh, sorts of buildings is that they're far far greener and of course wood is actually much better insulated than concrete uh, it it lasts if you keep it dry for hundreds of years and in fact it's even big pieces of wood are even more uh resistant to fire than than metals because they just char on the outside very difficult to get them to burn and so uh, they you're winning in all respects in these cases. Yeah, and I think people, and I don't know if this happened in the UK, but after the pandemic, well, we're still in the pandemic, but after the worst of the pandemic hit and then the inflation came, um, wood was one of the first things to inflate. And yeah. I think everyone sort of realized, oh my God, it's so central to my life because you know I was going to uh, build my daughter something in the backyard and I went to the store and it was sort of like sticker shock, like, oh my God, this thing that I just sort of casually would go and pick up a couple two by fours, um, you know, they were going for, you know, it was like $12 a two by four or something like that. Some of some absurd price. And the same with, you know, a sheet of plywood went to $80 right. and people started questioning, adding on to their homes and it, and it, the economy started, you know, could wood stall our economy. 
Um, yeah. And I think people sort of at that moment realize when when that thing you need is so common inflates in price. It's like, whoa, I didn't realize that this is central to everything that we're doing. So perhaps moments like that are instructive and helpful. The price has since gone down. Um, but um, remind us how pervasive these things are alongside a book like yours. Yeah, but I think it's um, it, it's a big wake up call just how important wood is, and and it's highlighting the fact that we need to look after our forests, manage them sustainably, so that we can replant woods as we as as we cut the timber manage them better so that we'll always have a good supply of timber. And it's only now that people are sort of suddenly coming, it's coming, the subject's coming to the fore, they're realizing that, that, uh, that this is an important topic and something that, and, and forests are things they really do need to, to look after. So maybe talking about what's next for you, but I'm curious, given the research and study that went into this book, which was obviously extensive, um, and understanding how humans have related to wood but also this material conservation side, um, our need for it to repair old buildings, to, to build new, to be more sustainable, to capture carbon. Given what you know of how humans have previously been able to manage resources, thinking about you know, England in the, you know, the, the 1600s, the 1700s, as they cleared out vast places, and you talk about the, the percentage of, of forested land and just globally just plummeting. Um, are you at all optimistic about, given sort of the, our historical track record of conserving and maintaining woodstocks? Do you have any hope for the future? I do have hope for the future, uh, partly because uh, the, whenever a, a country has high tree stocks, that's usually because we we that it's useful. Um, and the reason why there's so much deforestation at the moment in the in the Amazon and in and in uh, Southeast Asia, is that the land has been cleared of trees for agriculture. Uh, in this case, for for beef, for making cheap beef for hamburgers, soya to grow for soya, or for oil palm to to grow oil palms. So that's the really dangerous thing. If we can realise that wood and managing forests sustainably is economically useful, then There'll be then we can start to realize that we need uh, and the people on the ground will realize that there is a benefit of, of looking after their woods they can get an economic return on them and if we can if we can do that uh, then we can uh, in the future have more sustainable woods plenty plenty of timber plenty of biodiversity in the forests and and everyone will be a winner I think and have you seen that historically in the historical record? Are there moments in time where different civilizations or countries have been good at doing that? Um, well, the, the really good countries at looking after their forests have always been in this the Scandinavians who have something. And for instance, Finland has still got something like seventy five percent tree cover. Uh, it's got a sustainable forest industry. Lots of people work on it. Work in it. Uh, they're all forests. Uh, it's a sustainable council approved and everything like that. Uh, the important thing, if you want to have a a decent forest managed well, is to have good governance and to get rid of corruption. And and so the big effort has got to be in improving the governance of, 
of countries around the world helping them to uh, get rid of corruption because it's that 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 causes people to sell off woodland and just chop it down for the uh, for the lowest price basically so where are you headed next um this was obviously very i mean i i don't know about the sales of it did never really asked about that but it's it seems to be very successful it's it's on all the shelves here in the u.s it's been written up by the new york times and the wall street journal and the economist and all these different folks um have taken a look at it and, and has has received really great reviews um, so that's probably a good thing, but also a little bit scary. If you're going to write the next one, will it be as good? Right. Um, yes, so yes. Where, where are you headed next with your research and potentially publications? Well, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle or, or towards the end, actually, of writing my next book, which is on the subject, uh, not so related subject, of, of spin, about rotational motion, uh, which you might not think has much to do with wood. It's, to, it's going to talk about how we understand the importance of rotation in, in the way that our planet goes around the sun, the way the Earth spins, its effect on weather, on the magnetic field of the Earth, but also on the machinery uh, that we use and have used for thousands of years from spindles, which from which the word spin actually comes, through, through the water wheels, the Industrial Revolution, and how we move ourselves, how because we're systems of rotating joints, uh, and so it's another long roller coaster ride through history, but using uh, the the spin as the as the sort of joining joining force, and that links lots of my interests, and I'm interested in sport as well. So there'll be a chapter on how you play baseball and cricket better and things like that. So. Uh, I've enjoyed that as well. Lots of lots of of wooden material. Of course, most of the water wheels were wooden. Uh, lots of the early machinery, and but it's all linking everything together. And throughout my childhood, all our family were interested in looking at what's the links between everything. And uh, I've just been enjoying myself, basically playing around. Well, if anybody uh, questioned at the beginning of this interview. Uh, the diversity of your interests, uh, <laughs> or, or that perhaps you don't fit perfectly into one little spot in academia. Um, your next publication, uh, I think, just cemented that. Maybe that could be the next one, cement. Um, but yeah, uh, this yeah, is fascinating, and we'll have to we'll have to have you back to talk about spin when that happens. Um, I, I so appreciate you coming on and, and spending some time with us to talk about this, and, and hopefully, folks here in the preservation community in the U.S. and around the world we'll think uh, a little bit longer uh, and a little bit deeper about that material that um, makes up so much of our historic world. Um, and when they put their hands on it, we'll think a little bit deeper because of the work that you've done. So thank you so much, Roland. Oh, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving. <laughs>